It was late 2015 when I first watched overly excited and inexperienced new cannabis executives totally fail at interstate brand licensing. They were an Oregon company seeking to expand their brand into Washington. I was the lead negotiator on the Washington side of the deal. The deal as it appeared on paper was really more of a franchise agreement than it was a brand licensing deal, and I saw it as packed with red flags. It included some attributes that were downright fraud uh, to get around the state ownership laws here in Washington, and then another part of the deal would have cost my clients their license because of how they were intending to move the money around. Now, these were not bad people. These were folks who just didn't know enough about business to do it the right way, and they were very driven to find a creative solution in the morass of regulation. Luckily for us, another cannabis business was publicly reprimanded for trying to set up the same kind of licensing deal our suitors wanted to set up with us, and everyone realized that my cautious read of the situation was spot on, and everybody involved walked away from that deal. This is wildly common. Some of the stories I've heard from California and Nevada recently have similar blatantly fraudulent and unenforceable traits. Today's show is intended to give you context on the differences between licensing and franchising, how to choose partners, and how to think correctly through your opportunities in cannabis. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. Congratulations to Sebring, Ophelia, Aaron, and Nate, who all won organic soil nutrients from Green Bicycles yesterday just for being subscribed to the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive the newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com and sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Lose. My guest today is Chris Crane. Chris Crane is a 20-year veteran of the cannabis industry, first starting out in advocacy before moving over to business consulting. From 2000 to 2005, he was associate director of Normal and then became executive director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. In June of this year, he was elected to a third term on the board of directors of the National Cannabis Industry Association. He's now president and co-founder of Forefront, a leading investment and operations firm. Chris has clients and speaks at cannabis conventions all around the world. He is highly sought after by companies scaling their cannabis operations, and he also happens to be a really nice guy. Today, we're going to talk about interstate brand licensing. I also want to note that we experienced some technical difficulties while recording this episode. While Chris and I were both in professional studios, we were still talking via the internet, and some days packets just don't travel well. You'll hear some pops during the first set, but they do settle down as the show goes on and eventually kind of go away. So it'll be all right, and we appreciate you hanging with us. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me. Right on. So let's get let's start by getting everybody on the same page, right? Because everybody thinks they've got an idea about what's going on with licensing and franchising and, and everyone's expansion to other states. But for a lot of people, they don't necessarily understand why this is such a, a pressing thing. Um, so certainly we're seeing some brands break out as clear leaders in their origination state, the state that they are from, that they built their first business in. But most of these companies are eyeing expansion into other states. To explain this to folks, would you explain why expansion beyond one state is so attractive to these companies and perhaps even necessary in the cannabis market that we're looking at right now? 
Yeah, I mean, I think like any business, you, you, you're going to want to expand your business once successful. So if you're operational in one state and you're doing well in one state, you're going to want to expand that elsewhere. I think that the big difference between the cannabis industry and other businesses is that you know, if you're successful in in a state, let's use microbrews, for example. Let's say you set up a successful microbrewery in Colorado. You gain good market share in Colorado. You start seeing some popularity you know, online for your products in some neighboring states, say California and Arizona. Um, you want to start expanding into those states. You will simply increase your production capacity at your cultiv- at your well, your cultivation in this case, your uh, your 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 brewing uh, facility in Colorado, and you would start shipping product into Col- California and Arizona. That's simply not possible in the cannabis industry because it's still federally illegal and because of the state by state nature of the industry. So if you have a product that's gaining popularity and you want to expand your market share or expand your market, you have to go to another state and you have to get another license in that other state, um, which may not be the easiest thing in the world to do. Um, in most states, they have uh, very competitive uh, application processes where you're going to be competing against lots of other operators from around the country as well as some homegrown folks. Uh, and, uh, and you know, and, and in a lot of those states, there just aren't licenses available. Many states have a limit on the number of licenses. They grant all of those at once, and then they're not available beyond that. And so the only way to get into those other states would be either to acquire a license in another state, so basically buy somebody else's business, um, or to license your brand to a license holder in another state. So say you have a product brand, somebody wins a production license in a different state, you want to get in there, there's no brands, of, there's no licenses available, uh, you don't have the capital or don't want to buy that license, you could find a willing partner in another state and license that brand to them. So essentially you're licensing your intellectual property, your um, your SOPs, your way of, of, of pr- your methods of production um, and your brand. And, and they would then start producing and selling their brand and giving you some sort of licensing fee or royalty agreement back, um, back to the main company. Uh, one other thing I, w- I would just want to point out in terms of why people are looking to do this is, you know, this is a this is a growing industry and it's very hard to be a successful business just operating in one state. And so it makes sense you would want to go state to state to state. And when we look at what's happening, for example, on the public markets where uh, in Canada, a lot of these U.S. companies are going getting listed, there's a big appetite for multi-state operators. There's much less of an appetite in terms of getting publicly listed and getting investment into your company if you're a single state operator. And so that's also been a big motivation, I think, over the last year uh, for folks to get into multiple states because it provides them with better access to capital, which in a federally illegal industry with no access to traditional institutional lending um, is particularly attractive. Yeah, I think you're right. The big role that access to capital plays because, you know, in the in the early years, some five five years ago, there were a lot of folks who were planning on on uh, doing it on their own, right? And then they realized that the only way they were going to get access to capital is from people who wanted them to hit a grand slam. So it was no longer really people just doing a solid job in their state of origination. Suddenly, if people wanted to, you know, uh, get get capital, they needed to have as part of their pitch what their national expansion was. So, so in the, along that thought, Chris, you know, do you think that there's going to be much future for companies that choose to stay in one state and don't expand into other states? I think there will be, uh, but I think it's going to get 
it's going to get progressively harder um, to, to do that. So I think those that will you know survive as a solo state operator are largely going to be uh, um, you know those folks who uh, have a really solid uh, sort of craft brand in particular. Um, you know, I, I think there's a there's a place for craft production. So the you know the highest quality flour, the highest quality products, um, where you know you you have a, you would have a hard time doing that as a much larger scale operator. Um, I think those folks will you know will will find a way to survive and and ultimately you know the the walls of interstate commerce are are going to come down uh, and when that happens there'll be an ability for some of those those you know, single state operators to expand all of a sudden your your state doesn't really matter as much you know if you're getting if you're getting orders from you know just across the border which you know some of these northeastern states might be you know a 45 minute drive away um, you know that's no longer a relevant factor you can sell into another state once multi state com- uh, or interstate commerce opens up um, I think too the the other potential avenue for, for the solo operators and we're starting to see this now um, is frankly is to be acquired themselves um, so they you know if, if you can build a really solid brand in one state whether it's a prop brand or um, as a great cultivator or even a great retail brand um, as some of these you know larger multi-state consolidators and multi-state operators um, you know, start looking to acquire assets and and grow their their license portfolio those who have done a really nice job of operating a single store or a single uh, operation within one state um, are going to be, you know, nice, attractive targets to these multi-state consolidators. So, you know, as you know, as we all know, you only really need to worry about this, um, you know, the difficulty in expanding to another state if you're actually a license holder in your particular state. You know, corollary companies like making bongs or being a tax accountant firm or all these other things that, that you don't have to hold a license for. You guys can just expand like you traditionally would. Off you go. But, it, but it's folks who actually have got a state license where you are either a producer of the flower, you know, a, a process of it in some way, transport or a retailer. And what I'm curious is from your experience, are you finding that particular um, uh, niches of that that set of market is finding an easier time of expanding than others? You know, not really, frankly. Um, it, it depends on the state because you know, states have very different caps on the number of licenses and ways to expand. So, for example, you know, to get a cultivation license in Nevada is fairly easy or was fairly easy in the application process and would be relatively easy to acquire because they granted 180 cultivation licenses um, for a state of about 4 million people um, compared to, say, in Illinois – where there are 19 cultivation slash production licenses for a state of 13 million people. Um, you know, those licenses much, much more difficult to acquire or to even win in the first place. Um, so it, it has less to do with which part of the vertical you're in, right? Cultivation, production, dispensary, um, as opposed to what states you're looking to expand into, what the availability of licenses are in those states, either from a, uh, from a, a, a license application standpoint or an acquisition standpoint. All right. So like a guy, like you who is uh, uh, working in in many of the states for your own group, Forefront Ventures, and are also probably assisting some other people in other states where Forefront Ventures is not working themselves, where have you seen to be the hardest states to move into so far? And for what reason? 
well, they've mostly been states in the eastern half of the U.S., and that's primarily a, it's a combination of factors. But number one is the is the limit on the number of licenses. Um, so in, in a lot of these states in the eastern half of the country, there's a really small number of overall licenses. Um, so the applications for these licenses are um, incredibly competitive. Uh, and you know, even if you put together, you know, in some states, I would say if you put together, you know, an A plus team with an A plus quality application and like an A plus lobbying effort, you might have a 10 to 15 percent chance of winning. Uh, you know, if you if you if you can't put all that together, you may as not you may as well not even bother applying. I would look at states like Florida and New York, uh, for example, states that fit that. New Jersey sim- has been similar, although we think New Jersey is about to open up um, to more licenses later on this year and into next year as they expand their medical program and, and expand it to recreational. Um, you know, even a state like Illinois, uh, where uh, there's again there's 13 or sorry there's 13 million people and and, and 19 cultivator producer licenses, right? That's a very difficult state to get into. Um, so by and large, it's the states in the northeast or in the eastern half of the country with the limited licenses, uh, very challenging uh, application processes, um, and fairly strict regulatory environment. So you know, not only do you have to be able to win a license or acquire a license, you have to be able to navigate uh, what's generally stricter uh, regulatory environments than you than you get in many of the Western states. So clearly, there are savvy business people in every state. But as we've seen, you know, there's a certain amount of um, I don't know corporate memory creep of how to do cannabis business specifically that comes along with normalization, and that has generally been you know coming from the West Coast across the country as more states first adopt medical and then move their way towards rec. Do you find that there is um, uh, that 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 along with setting up these licensing arrangements going east, that there's not only a lot of just you know simple negotiating the licenses, but there's bringing these these otherwise competent entrepreneurs up to speed going east, just so they understand the the new moving parts in this industry that hasn't existed before. I, I, I'm, can you, I'm sorry, can you repeat the, the, the question yeah, there? I yeah. didn't quite get that. Yeah, <laughs> so sorry, sorry. Maybe that was a little convoluted. You're going to edit this later. Uh, the, the, the point <laughs> I'm trying to, to ask... Sure I'm not answering nonsense. <laughs> the, 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 point, the point I'm trying to bring out here is that, 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 that there are good business people everywhere, right? But they may not necessarily know cannabis business specifically in every state. Are you finding that as, as, as cannabis is moving into these new states that, yeah, you need to reach out, you need to find partners, you need to, to negotiate what you want to do with the license, but at the same time, you also have to teach cannabis business because it's different and unique to other types of business? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, when you look at some of the more successful operators in particularly in these more challenging states, what you typically see, and, and I would say successful in terms of both winning the license and then operating licenses, what you typically see is a combination of business experience and cannabis experience. Um, and frankly, you know, local political experience as well. I mean, these, these licenses are somewhat political in terms of how they're granted, uh, even if states like to say they're not. Um, so, you know, and, and they tend to give deference to locals um, to a degree as well, sometimes implicitly, sometimes explicit. Um, so, uh, you know, the, it's the combination of having you know, really good local 
particularly good local business people who might have good political connections or good real estate connections, um, who partner up with folks who have really good experience from outside of that state that can help demonstrate competency in cannabis. Um, and that, that combination tends to do fairly well. Um, it is a bit harder for the you know business people who've never done cannabis to figure out how to do this on their own without uh, you know a significant dose of, of education in cannabis business. Um, and likewise, uh, I think for folks who started in cannabis, particularly in you know the more sort of gray markets in California, you know prior to the last year or so when real regulations came into place. A lot of those folks have a really hard time navigating these much more complex uh, regulatory environments in the eastern half of the country. So I think that combination has proven to be relatively successful and, frankly, uh, fairly necessary for both sides of the equation. Right on. That makes a lot of sense. So we're going to take our first short break a little early and try to get rid of that pop in the recording. So uh, so stay with us. Uh, you are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is Chris Crane, co-founder of Forefront Ventures. As a business owner, you are incredibly busy. In reality, you are responsible for everything your company does. You've got so many responsibilities every single day that often you just don't have the time to really dig into your marketing as deeply as you'd like. You know there's more that you could do to reach out to new customers and encourage loyalty in the customers you do have, but you certainly don't have the time for it, and you're not really ready to hire someone full-time for that role either. For you, I recommend Blunt Branding. At Blunt Branding, Kirsten Nelson and her team are focused on improving your bottom line. You know, most marketing firms are excited to make your logo, packaging, and website very pretty, but they leave responsibility for improving your bottom line up to you. They don't want that kind of responsibility. But that's pretty much the most important part of marketing, right? Kirsten and her team will help you engage new customers, funnel them to your point of sale, whether it be online or a storefront, and keep them coming back to you and telling their friends. Now, if you happen to be a new cannabis company or an established company moving from medical to adult use in your state, Kirsten especially can help you. Not only is she well-versed in marketing and finance, but she totally gets cannabis, whole plant medicine, terpenes, heritage farmers, and the particular needs of startups. Check out what she did recently for Moontime Medicinals in Humboldt County at MoontimeMedicinals.com. Kirsten and her team put together a whole brand package for them, built their website, and wrote their sales materials. No doubt, this is a paid commercial spot, but that does not mean that they bought my opinion. I've worked with Blunt Branding on four projects now for various clients, and every single time they have done more than they've promised and over-delivered on results. I love how they generate new revenue and focus on that as the goal instead of just making you a pretty logo. Similarly, every single friend I've referred them to has come back to thank me. That just doesn't happen every day. Grab a pen and paper because the website address is coming. If you want someone to implement marketing programs that feed your bottom line, give Blunt Branding a call. They will share proven techniques to increase your audience and generate sales while using cutting-edge technology solutions in the background that make all of this easy, automatic, and trackable. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash Blunt Branding to find out more. You can also click on the link in our newsletter. Blunt Branding, marketing that makes you money. Did you know that Shaping Fire has a fabulous YouTube channel with content not found on the podcast? 
When I attend conventions or speak or moderate panels, I always record them and bring the content home for you to watch. The Shangolos YouTube channel has world-class speakers, including Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery, talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile. Nicholas Mahmood on regenerative and polyculture cannabis growing. Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world. Ben Cassidy of True Terpenes on using terpenes for health in your everyday life. Reggie Godino of Steep Hill on the cannabis genome. And Jeff Lowenfels on the soil food web. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system, and even my own presentation on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business even though the risks are so high. As of today, there are over 100 videos that you can check out for absolutely free. Go to youtube.com forward slash shangolos or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los, and our guest this week is Chris Crane, co-founder of Forefront Ventures. So during the first set, we talked a lot about why a company would uh, be looking to expand beyond their origination state for all sorts of good reasons, from spreading the risk around to accessing more capital and, and also just to be able to be a, an established national brand. But one of the things that uh, gets people in a bad position constantly is a confusion between licensing and franchising. And that's what we're going to talk about primarily today here in the second set. So Chris, you know, now that we've established the why, let's focus on the heart. And that's the difference between licensing and franchising. People often mistakenly think that they're synonymous, but they are certainly not. And they're really not even interchangeable for cannabis. What's the primary differences between licensing and franchising? Sure. So it's a good question. And, and you're right. People really do often get this one wrong. Um, and they use the words interchangeably, but they're quite different. Um, you know, the main thing to get across is I, I don't think there is any franchising in cannabis right now. Um, I know there are some groups that have looked at doing it, but I don't think anybody's actually running a, tra a, a, a traditional franchise. The, so to back up, the main difference between licensing and franchising is licensing is essentially you are giving somebody the right to use your brand um, and potentially your intellectual property, some operating protocols, um, your methods of production, um, and then they have the right to use that and they pay you some fee to do that. Um, franchising agreements are m uh, much more... Uh, broad, so they give you they give you the ability to to essentially sell all of those things, right? Your name of your 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 brand, your your SOPs, your protocols, right? Your your methodology, um, but you also have a much greater degree of uh, control over your franchisee. So in a franchise agreement, you can. Your franchise, or you must offer these sales on these days. Your store must look exactly this way. You must buy your products from these vendors, or you must buy these products from us specifically. A franchisor can tell you where you can locate and where you can't locate. In fact, they can tell you where you have to locate. Um, so if you go and buy a Dunkin' Donuts, for example, you have no freedom over what that Dunkin' Donuts looks like, over where you buy your products, over where you buy your donut making materials and, um, and whatnot. Whereas in a licensing agreement, it's very difficult to get into that level of detail. Um, and so licensees have a bit more freedom uh, than a franchisee would have. Um, 
licensors uh, also have to jump through significantly fewer hoops than franchisors would have to go through. So in order to be a franchisor, you have to put you come up with what's called a franchise disclosure agreement um, or franchise disclosure document, an FDD. Um, that there are very specific guidelines that govern what uh, what go into an FDD. Um, there's a t- ton of disclosures about um, the owners of the company, any business that you've done, anybody that you've offered franchises to. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a few hundred pages of, of background information, information about the business. Um, there are rules around how you, uh, how you franchise. So you have to give that document to somebody. You then can't contact them for something like a week to make sure <laughs> that they have time to review it. Um, right. If you do, then they can get out of their franchise agreement. Um, and, and so it's a, it's a real process. And then in about half the states or over half the states, you have to file with the state corporate board or franchise board to be recognized as a franchisor in that state um, in order to offer a franchise. None of those are necessary for licensing agreements. A licensing agreement, you know, any good corporate attorney can put together a license agreement for you. You negotiate that with the attorney on the other side. You all agree to what parameters you're going to operate under, but you won't, as the licensor, have the same degree of control over your licensee that you would as a franchisor uh, over their franchisee. Let's tease out where that threshold is, right? Because while um, while in a license relationship, um, you can't call out everything as specifically as in a franchise relationship. Certainly, there are some things that you can uh, control. For example, I would think the uh, the deployment of the brand and what the brand looks like. Essentially, the the brand usage book that probably stays consistent since that's part of what's being uh, licensed. That's right. Um, but but where does that where does that end? So does it does it end as soon as you start talking about the operations of the company or is it only particular parts of the operation? So there's not really a clear line. Um, and this is where I mean, I, I should I should disclaim all this by saying I'm not an attorney. Um, and so if you're really <laughs> yeah. thinking about if you're really thinking about you know, becoming a franchisor or a licensor or a franchisee or licensee, you need to seek out a good corporate attorney. And if you're on the franchise side of things, definitely seek out a franchise attorney or specific attorneys that handle these kind of things. Um, and I'm not one of those. Um, so we'll talk about this at the high level. But my understanding is there's not a very there's not a concrete line between what uh, you know, what would constitute a franchise versus a license. Um, but generally, you're right. It's things like you can say you have the right to use the brand. The brand has to stay consistent, right? You can't just change the logo um, uh, or or do something that's going to be detrimental to that to, to the to the overall brand. Um, and you'd have to set out certain guidelines as to you know this is what we expect out of the brand. This is what it looks and feels like. Um, you, you you can. And you and you can't dictate how they run their business. Um, so again, you can't say in a licensing agreement, you have to buy all of your products from me, uh, right? You have to you have to buy these products from these vendors, and you have to buy this particular type of floorboard for your store and this particular type of display case for your store. Um, you know, you can you can do a little bit of that as long as as long as what you're as well, what you're contracting around is to protect the integrity of the brand, um, but you can't tell them they have to do this, they have to do that. Um, the the fees are also t- also tend to be a little bit different in a licensing agreement. You can have all different kinds of fees, so somebody could pay you you know a flat fee per month to license your your brand and your and your operations protocols. Um, they could pay you a royalty on sales. Um, there's a lot of different ways to do it. With a franchise agreement, it's much more standard. Um, you typically pay a upfront fee um, as your upfront franchise franchise fee, and then there's an ongoing percent of sales. 
sales um, back to the franchisor, um, some which are ongoing franchise fees, some which are joint marketing fees. And so usually the franchisor will do marketing for you know, all of their franchises in, a, in an area. So, you know, for example, again, if you go back to a Dunkin' Donuts, um, having lived in Boston for the last four years, uh, it's, it's a good one to use for me um, since you can't throw a rock without hitting a Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> in the Boston area. Uh but you know, there, so there's so there's, you know, there's there's hundreds of Dunkin' Donuts in the Boston area, for example. They don't each go out and do their own advertising. Um, the, the the corporate you know, the corporate franchisor of Dunkin' Donuts does all of the advertising for all of the franchises in Boston. Um, so they'll run the advertising on Boston radio, on Boston TV, on you know online, um, and uh, and and that's to the benefit of the of the franchisees. They don't have to then go out and spend that money themselves. But it's also why it's important for the franchisor to make sure that if somebody walks into you know one Dunkin' Donuts and then they walk into another Dunkin' Donuts, you know half mile down the road, that all of the products are the same, the displays are the same, the look and feel is the same. Right? It's the exact same experience that's much harder to dictate through a licensing agreement than it is through a franchising agreement all right that makes sense so let's dig a little deeper into that because i thought i had an idea of what the threshold was and then and then and then i realized i don't because i thought that we were going to say that the the threshold for a license is that you're licensing the brand and that when you're doing a franchise relationship it's it's more operational based and the how to but ah in this last answer you said that the licensees will license both the brand and the the SOPs the standard operating procedures how how the the company can run internally so so this tell this suggests to me that perhaps the threshold between a franchise and a license may be perhaps on the enforcement of this of the operating procedures because from my understanding with a franchise they can send people from the home office to the franchised location and run them through a, a bunch of of questions to make sure that everything is running as it's supposed to in the operating procedures from the home office and i and 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 i believe that with licensees that actually breaks the law and you can't actually and do that kind of enforcement so so hit that a little bit if you would yeah, my, my understanding is that that's right. And again, this is where the lines get a little bit blurry. Um, but it's what, what is clear is as a franchisor, absolutely, you can send folks from home office in, say, look, if you're not doing all this, we have the right to, we have the right to take your store away. And take another franchisor from another store and give it to them. Um, you know, if you're not if you're not maintaining the integrity of our of our brand and our stores, um, that that's not the case with a licensing agreement. Or you're going to have to go through a number of steps to, to, to you're, you're going to claim contract infringement, um, and then there has to be steps to remedy that infringement within the contract um, that you would you would take as a as a as a franch as a, as a licensor towards your licensee, give them the opportunity to cure that. Um, so you're dealing with much more sort of standard contract law rather than what you have in a franchise. Agreement in a franchise agreement where the franchisors have a great deal of power. Um, but you're right. The licensing is not necessarily just around a brand. It is often around the operating protocols specifically. So, you know, let's say for example, uh, somebody develops a better way to, uh, create cannabis infused, uh, uh, patches, uh, right? So, uh, uh, kind of like a whatever Mary's medicinals or Mana Molecular, right? Who do the, the who do a, a you know a, a patch the trans, yeah the transdermal kind of transdermal patches. exactly yeah. yeah transdermal. So let's say somebody comes up with a really good way to come up to do transdermal patches, and they have their own brand, say in know, Illinois, right? Uh, and then somebody from Arkansas comes and says, I'd, I'd really like to use that, but you know what, your brand in Illinois isn't 
you know, it's, it's known in Illinois, but like nobody here in Arkansas knows your brand. Um, I don't put a whole lot of value in the brand itself. Um, cause you know, nobody knows it here and I can put that out on the shelves and they're not going to know that from any other transdermal patch. Um, but your methodology is great and I really interested in that and I want to build my own brand around it. You could license the technology um, so let's say you've created some kind of machine that creates this transdermal patch um, and then uh, standard operating procedures or standard operating protocols for how you operate that machinery, you could license that machine and those operating procedures, but say, you know, you can, you can just white label it, put your own brand on it. Um, you don't have to run our, 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 you know, you don't have to have our brand, but you have to use the machine, you know, you, we're licensing you the ability to use this machine. So you don't own the machine. We own it. We're licensing you to use it and we're licensing you the intellectual property that goes along with how to operate it but that would also fall under the, the category of a licensing agreement so it doesn't have to include the brand whereas with a franchise it's everything it's the brand it's the operations it's the sops it's the look and feel it's who you buy stuff from it's how much you pay for it it's all of it right so if you're a if you're a if you're a franchisor again we'll go back to the dunkin donuts example you know let's say you own, you own a dunkin donuts and you know, some vendor hits you up and is like, hey, I can sell you the same flour that you're buying from Dunkin' for half the price. And it's going to, you know, it's going to save you, you know, 10 cents on every, you know, 50 cent donut that you create um, or that you that you cook. You don't have the right to do that as a franchisor. If you do that, that's a clear violation of your franchise agreement. Um, and you could, you know, you could potentially lose your store for that. That, that kind of enforcement becomes much more difficult in a licensing agreement. Right on. So I've got one more question. I want to keep. I want to keep banging at this license versus franchising at the threshold point. So, so you you mentioned that there's a gray area, right? And the funny thing about gray area and business people, including myself, is on one hand you want to get rid of these gray areas because these gray areas create risk, right? And we're all trying to decrease the amount of risk that surrounds our business investment of time and capital. Um, but at the same time. I also know that as a business person, I've done most of my best deals in the gray areas of arbitrage, um, kind of like, you know, finding loopholes and, and exploiting them to my benefit. So it's like, eh, great, you know, gray areas, good or bad. Who is the arbiter of the gray area? I'm guessing it's some, uh, some federal group who, when push came to shove, if a decision was to be made whether or not something was uh, licensed or franchise, there's got to be somebody who plays umpire to that. So who does it eventually fall to? So it, it is... Uh... There's a there is a federal agency and and, and uh, off the top of my head I'm, I'm, I'm not recalling the name of the agency it's like a federal fran franchise board or something so there is a federal agency that looks at looks at this although my understanding is this is actually mostly done at the state level um, so most states will will license franchises through their 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 either their franchise board or uh, or corporate board um, and then even states that don't you don't have to register as a franchisor um, they still have oversight. Uh, over franchisors because you still have to go through the FDD disclosure process. I mean, there's a long process you have to go through in order to be a franchisor in order to sell franchises. Um, so you could get in trouble at either the state or the federal level. Um, and there's a there's actually a, a 
I don't know if it's a category of law, but there's a there's a term called accidental franchise, um, <laughs> which, which 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 is what gets people in trouble um, if they are essentially acting as a franchisor without having gone through the full franchise process. Um, they can get fined as an accidental franchise. Their licensing agreements can all be basically nullified uh, at that point. They can they can get massive fines. They can lose a lot of business. Um, so you know, very important if you're looking to get into licensing or any kind of licensing agreement. Um, that you consult with a, a good corporate attorney or even a franchise attorney to make sure you're not running afoul of accidental franchise laws. Um, and that generally comes down to the level of control that you're giving your licensees. Um, so again, if you're if you're just saying, look, you have the right to use our brand, you don't have the right to do anything that would besmirch our brand um, or bring down our brand value. And if you're going to, you know, if you're looking for some, if you're trying to use our methodology, we really need you to stick to those SOPs because you know, you can gunk up our machines if you don't do it this way, um, right? All that's going to be fine. Um, but if you start saying you have to buy certain things from certain people at certain times, you have to do things certain ways, you have to offer certain sales in certain days, um, and we're going to do joint marketing for you and all of our other licensees. Well, now you're starting to look like a franchisor. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that get you in trouble. The other thing too is, which a lot of, because a lot of people don't recognize the difference between franchise and licensing, is just don't use the word franchise. <laughs> and I, 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 I've had a lot of people who've, who've had like, oh yeah, I've got this great brand, and we're going to go and we're going to franchise the brand. It's like, well, have you talked to a franchise attorney about it? Well, no. Well, what do you plan to do? Well, we're going to license this and we're license that. Okay, great. Don't use the word franchise. You're a licensor. You're not a franchisor. Like that's like the number one thing that gets somebody in trouble for accidental franchises. They use the word franchise because they just don't know the difference um, and they don't get the distinction. So you, you really want to make sure that you work with a good corporate lawyer who really understands franchise law and accidental franchise so that your contracts are set up the right way, your marketing materials are set up the right way, um, your licensing agreements are set up the right way so you don't accidentally run afoul of these, these quote unquote accidental franchise laws. Right. Right on. Now that we understand all of that, we're going to go to our second commercial break and we come back for set three. We're going to talk about how actually to implement one of these licensing agreements and some pitfalls to watch out for. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to Shaping Fire and my guest today is Chris Crane, co-founder of Forefront Ventures. As a listener of Shaping Fire, you already understand the importance of living soil when growing cannabis. When you have active microbe communities in your substrate, you go way beyond simply fertilizing with nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Having active microorganisms in your substrate supports vigorous plant growth throughout the plant's root zone, making for higher yields and thriving flowers. Mammoth pea is the first organically derived microbial inoculant that focuses on your plant's nutrient cycling processes to release soil phosphorus and other micronutrients from their bound forms, making them more available to the plant. Increased levels of phosphorus will also keep internodes shorter and focus your plant's energy on bud production. Not only that, but the microbes act as a defense shield for the plant's rhizosphere by outcompeting potentially harmful pathogenic microbes. Pretty cool, right? Mammoth pea not only unlocks the nutrients in your soil, but it also helps protect your plant from disease. Mammoth pea's beneficial bacteria act like microbioreactors, continually producing enzymes that release nutrients. Mammoth pea was developed at a U.S. university and has been extensively tested by Colorado growers and independent laboratories. Mammoth pea is proven to increase growth and enhance blooming. One of the great things about supplementing with microorganisms is that they won't compete with whatever fertilizer program you're already running. Simply dose on top of your fertilizer schedule for increased benefits. 
To learn more and to find out where you can buy Mammoth Pea near you, check out their website at www.mammothmicrobes.com. Partner with microorganisms to create beautiful, thriving cannabis. Mammoth Pea. Now that the health benefits of terpenes have become well-known in the cannabis industry, people everywhere are looking for the purest terpenes without adulterants. The problem with most terpene providers is that they're not sourced naturally and instead are made as a byproduct of refining petroleum, and that's so sketchy. The terpenes sold by True Terpenes are entirely different. They are certified organic, non-GMO, and food grade. That means that they are extracted from real plant sources. There are no solvents of any kind. They are distilled only with steam. That's right, only steam. In fact, terpenes from True Terpenes are so pure that you can eat them. Not only that, but you can stack them with better results too. What I mean is, other companies' terpenes have got a few percent of impurities, and when you stack those terpenes to make your blend, you're adding a variety of impurities that degrade your final product. True terpenes also have strain-specific terpenes for a wide range of cannabis strains like Durban Poison, Sunset Sherbet, and Granddaddy Purple. True Terpenes has robust and supportive customer service, so your questions will get answered fast and efficiently. If you've shopped for Terps before, you know how rare that is. So whether you want to cup your hands to smell some beta-caryophylline to calm down after getting too high, or if you want to dab some pinene so your lungs feel fabulous and your mind feels liberated, True Terpenes will provide you with a truly natural experience. If you are a cannabis product developer, these are the terps you want to add to your oil or edible or capsule or whatever. True terpenes are simply the best your money can buy. Don't try and make a premium product with substandard terps. Choose true terpenes for a top shelf experience. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash true terpenes to find out more or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You're listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is Chris Crane, co-founder of Forefront Ventures. So during the first set, we talked about why folks are wanting to license and expand in other states. And during set two, we really dug deeply into licensing and franchising. So we got a really good idea of what it means to license your brand, how to go about doing that, and how to not get tripped up by agreements that are actually franchising, which we cannot yet do now in cannabis. So with that, I now want to understand um, how we would reach out to parties in our new host target state if we want to expand. So let's say that we are either in, say, for example, Washington, which is totally broke. So a lot of the companies here are looking to expand into new states to hopefully have a greener future. Um, and then, and then of course, in California, like everybody wants to expand nationally because everybody's aggressive as hell. So, so let's say that we have got our company and we're ready to move to another state. Chris, how do we find good, reliable uh, folks in the target state that we want to move into to work with? So by and large, there aren't that many license holders in most of these states, um, right? So in most states, there are caps on the overall number of licenses. Uh, and oftentimes the states list the winners. So you can usually go onto a state's health department or a revenue department website and get a list of all the licensees in those states. 
Um, you can often then go onto their corporate commission website and find their you know, f- corporate foundation documents, uh, which usually have some sort of contact information. Um, or you know, oftentimes they, they may even have a website. You can contact them that way. Um, so it's not that difficult by and large to find out who the licensees are. In, and by licensees, I mean people who hold state licenses um, in these new states. And those are going to be your, your targets to license your brand. Right? You need to go to somebody who has a production license, a cultivation license, a dispensary license, depending on what it is that you're looking to to, to license. Um, so if you're not going to go into one of these states and win a license yourself or acquire a license yourself, um, it's not that difficult to find out who holds those state licenses and then figure out a way to, to reach out to them. When you're vetting folks in the target state, because let's say there, you know, there, there could be a few hundred or more of these people that you're, that you're targeting. Um, what do you look at as a first level vetting of who you might want to go to first? I think much like with just about anything, uh, you, you want you want to feel comfortable with the management team. Uh, so you want to find out, you know, who the owners are, who the managers are. You want to do some diligence on them, do some background checks, ask for references. Um, make sure you feel comfortable with the management team themselves, um, and then you know, and then it really depends on what it is you're looking to license. So um, you know, if you're a retailer, for example, and you're looking to license your retail brand, you're going to want to see, you know, where are they? Do they fit the, you know, do they fit the the, the t- types of areas that you like to locate your retail store. So if you're, you know, if you're the type of company that, you know, you want your stores on, you know, main streets and high populated areas, you know, you probably aren't going to be as interested in somebody who has a more rural uh, or suburban location. Um, you know, if you are a, a, uh, a product manufacturer, um, you want to make sure that the, uh, the, the, the license holder has, uh, good operating capacity. Um, uh, you know, if you're a cultivator and you're trying to license cultivation methodology, right? Do they have a good cultivation facility that would fit the types of operations protocols that we're going to be licensing? Or is this just a, you know, is this a bad fit from a, you know, from a, from a location standpoint? Um, you also want to think about distribution, um, particularly when you're looking at larger states. So, you know, in Illinois, where I currently live, there are a number of producers that are what we call downstate, right, in the southern part of Illinois. That's logistically challenging for them to get their products into the Chicago market on a regular basis because they're not allowed to warehouse their products in Chicago. So anytime they want to make a shipment, right, they got to drive, you know, five six hours um, to uh, you know to Chicago to, to to drop things off. And so you might want to look for somebody who has a cultivation or production facility that's closer to um, the the you know the the more dense markets um, where it's not going to be as difficult. So you know all of these will factor in, but it really does depend on you know what segment of the market you're you're looking at and and what your ultimate goals are. I can imagine that when setting up a licensing agreement that, you know, when going through the negotiation process and, and putting numbers and compensation into the document, um, it's probably relatively common for the licensee and the licensor to have different perceived values of the brand where, where the, 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 the parent company thinks that their brand is worth a, worth a whole hell of a lot. And the licensee is all like, meh, you're not in our state. What have you seen about that where, where they have got different values for the brand? 
Yeah, that's been really interesting. Um, and and this is something we saw play out a, a lot more a few years ago, um, particularly as these East Coast states were really just starting to come online. Um, you, you had brands like Dixie or Open Vape, for example, which at that time were you know probably the two biggest brands um, on the West Coast who had you know big market share in Colorado and California in particular. Um, and then people were winning licenses in places like Massachusetts or Illinois or Nevada or um, uh, Arizona. Um, and these companies were coming in and they were marketing themselves as you know, the best brand in the industry, household names. And what we found was a real disconnect between the 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 brand owners and the potential licensees in that the brand owners often really valued the brand itself thinking like hey we've got all this market share in colorado all this market share in california people love our brand our brand's a household name right you, you, uh, the brand itself comes with a nice premium right you should pay up for the right to use that brand because it's such a good established brand and what a lot of the folks in these newer states were looking at is going well yeah, people know Dixie in Colorado and California, but if I were to go out and poll most cannabis consumers or most patients in, in Illinois or you know Massachusetts or Connecticut, most of them probably won't know what Dixie is. Um, so what I'm more interested in as the potential licensee is your operating protocols, right? Like I want to do marijuana infused beverages or I want to do vape pen cartridges, but you know, I don't really know how to do it. And I know that, that trying to do it on my own, I'm going to make a whole bunch of mistakes. Um, and I'm going to have to learn and that's going to you know, impact my, you know, my sales in the market. I'm willing to pay a licensing agreement to use your SOPs and your operating protocols and your equipment and, you know, and, and, and not have to reinvent the wheel, but you know, I don't really care as much about whether my products are called Dixie or I, if I, you know, create something new on my own that's new to the market. Um, and and it's actually, I think, one reason why a lot of those early licensing agreements didn't work um, is because there was a real disconnect over the value of the brand itself versus the value of the operations protocols. I would think too that uh, that there would have to be some some really intense thinking by a brand who was being asked to. Uh, license their SOPs without the brand, right? Because potentially they could be creating a uh, a competitor in their own market who are making quality products just like them, but then not using their name. Yeah, I think that you know that 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 it would be a real concern. I think that's why a lot of these early agreements didn't get done. Now we're seeing more of them get done. I think we've seen more movement on both sides um, towards uh, towards consensus of what these brands are worth. Um, but you're right. Um, now, by and large, you're not so much concerned that you're creating a competitor within your own market because, by and large, right with the with the nature of this being state by state, you're going to markets where you're not already there and trying to license that technology and license that brand. But for the owners of the companies, you know, the value to them is really in the brand. They want to get that brand out there. So if you're a Dixie or you're an Incredibles or you're an Open or you know one of these or Wanna brands or right, you want to get that brand out there in these other states. And your best way to do that is through a licensing agreement. That gets challenging when the person on the other side is going, yeah, I want you know, I want, I want the the, the expertise, I want the protocols, but I don't really care about your brand, and I kind of want to develop my own brand. And so you have to then you know stop and think, is it is it worth it? for me to help create a competitor, you know, even though the reality is I'm getting a, 
I'm getting a cut of their sales, right? Like the, the licensing agreement's not free. So if I create a, if I help create someone who becomes a really good competitor, I'm still benefiting from it, but I'm probably not benefiting in the way that I would if it were my brand that were being promoted, because that then helps me expand that brand into other parts of the country. It helps boost my brand, uh, my brand profile may help boost my valuation as a company because I can point to my brand being in all these different states. Um, so it's a, it's, you know, it's a real challenge and I could see from the standpoint of a licensor, why it might be on starter for many of them to just say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to license this technology and you can do whatever brand you want with it. Now that in and of itself, I think is a business model. Um, but if you're starting from the point of having a really well-established brand in a more, in, in a more mature market, you're probably going to want to, to, to make sure that that brand is being promulgated around the country and you're not just you know, seeding competitors with the know-how that you've learned through your years of trial and error. One of the things that I talk with my clients about a lot is what's going to happen to the market after interstate commerce is allowed. Because a lot of these, you know, not necessarily robust companies in individual states are just going to get crushed from competitiveness, primarily from California. Uh, but, you know, there'll be artisan brands in individual states that stay, you know, strong and can hold off the onslaught from places where it's nicer to grow and maybe they've got <clears throat> more in state talent. But I would think that once interstate commerce is is something that we can do that it will also impact the likelihood of licenses and that that whole ecosystem will change um how do you see uh interstate commerce impacting the licensing market well it's a great question uh so interstate commerce will you know will change things pretty dramatically although i think interstate commerce is going to take a while to roll out um so even when it happens i don't think it's something that happens you know overnight mm -hmm. um i think the state-by-state -state nature of this probably stays in play for a little while um as interstate commerce is opening up but that you know that said uh i, I agree with you i think Companies that are spending you know, tens of millions of dollars building out you know, hundreds of thousands of square feet of cultivation space in the eastern half of the country uh, you know, might find themselves in some real trouble when interstate commerce does, does open up. I think interstate commerce, you're right, I think is largely going to be out west um, in terms of where the cultivation is going to happen. Um, you know, the, the atmospheric conditions in the eastern half of the country are really tough for cultivation, um, much more humid, um, you know, much bigger temperature swings. And so for all those reasons, I think you're going to be seeing, you know, large scale greenhouses uh, in, in places like, uh, you know, the Central Valley of California and Arizona and Nevada, you know, high, Colorado, even you know, high deserts um, with 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 fewer temperature spring, uh, sw uh, swings. Um, and uh, and you'll see outdoor in, you know, many of the, in, in, in other places, other parts of California in particular, uh, you know, as a, as a bit of an aside, you know, when we talk about what we do at Forefront and, uh, you know, we're, we're very focused in the eastern half of the country, we do some cultivation, but it's very targeted and we're not doing, you know, really massive scale cultivation. Because ultimately, I think when that when that comes, this commoditizes, right? I mean, the prices, yeah. the wholesale prices are going to fall, you know, fall you know, fall through the floor um, once you can grow on a massive scale because uh, ultimately like it's still a plant and particularly if you're talking about growing for extraction where you don't really care as much about the quality of the buds um, you just care about volume right the, the, I mean the, the, the prices are going to come way 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 down so when we look at you know when we look at where we're interested in playing in the market we're not really interested in large-scale cultivation there are going to be a few really big winners in that market but there's going to be a lot more losers um, uh, and so, you know, we, we, we like to say 
you know, it's kind of like likening playing the end of alcohol prohibition by buying a hop farm. Right. Well, you know, <laughs> if you know, if, if you want to, if you want to, you know, you want to, you want to do really well in the alcohol industry or in the beer industry, you don't want to be a farmer. Right? You don't want to own the hop farms. You want to own brands and you want to own distribution. Um, right. So you want you want to own the 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 the, the distributors. You want to own the, the popular brands. Uh, you want to own those distribution points. But the hop farmers are the the, the least profitable part of the of the equation. And I think the same ultimately is going to be this is going to be there for cannabis, which makes the brand side right coming back to your original question makes the brand side so much more important because um, ultimately the feedstock that goes into that brand is going to be really cheap and other than your really high-end artisan cultivators like the absolute best to the best right the prices for raw material and the prices for raw flour is really going to drop but brands tend to hold their value quite a bit better of course the value of those brands will come down as well so in different kinds of infused products brands so edibles and vape pens and you know everything else right those will hold their value a bit more than the raw material and the flowers themselves and so i think establishing a really good brand now that can go state to state to state to state um, and establishes your, and, and establishes a a following for that brand in multiple states across the country is going to be particularly valuable when the rails come down on interstate commerce because those brands are going to then be able to buy their product a lot cheaper, um, to create their product a lot cheaper, and to ship elsewhere around the country a lot cheaper. Um, uh, while the while the value of their brands, while it will come down some, will hold its value a lot better than the than the raw flowers. Um, so right now, getting into that licensing game and making sure that you're doing everything you can to maximize the exposure of your brand, I think, is really important um, because you're going to want to have those distribution channels, right? If your brand your brands become important, but being able to distribute those through the distribution channels in the industry also becomes incredibly important. The way that you get into those distribution channels today, if you're a product manufacturer, largely is to license your brand to uh, manufacturers in other states. Um, and eventually, you know, if you do really well, maybe you end up acquiring those those companies that you've licensed your brands to down the road, um, or you pump way more product through those licensors down the road um, and increase your, your you know increase your, your your revenue that way. I definitely think that the big time players are very aware of this too, and also the next level up, right? Because you know, I'm at conventions and at dinner and talking with these guys who are invested in highly scaling oil uh, product folk, right? And they're like, yeah, you know, like we do our product manufacturing and we are aggressively licensing, um, but we're not really all that invested into the production of the flowers to uh, the materials to go into the oil because they're all waiting for international commerce, well, for the U.S. to get involved with international commerce because it's already occurring. Uh, we're just right. not playing in it because everyone's waiting to like, you know, you know what it's going to be like to have all of this flower grown in Mexico on inexpensive land with less expensive labor they you know and they certainly will have the the intellectual property and talent to do the extractions and then just ship the finished product here where people will plug it into their actual products I mean you talk about that to somebody who hasn't really thought that through in their single state business model and you can just see their face go pale whereas other hardcore players say for example in California California, like they're already planning on that happening within the next 15 years and they're they already know what they're going to do when that happens and I and I think that that um, I think that that is shocking to people who haven't considered it 
Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, the international piece of this is is something that's uh, largely off the radar in the United States, um, but it shouldn't be because um, it's you know it's already going on. You've got licenses uh, for for large scale cultivation and oil production in Colombia, um, which by the way is where most of the, the the cut flower industry gets their flowers from in the U.S. If you go into uh, you know if you buy you if mean you like buy ornamental flowers, flowers? in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you go to if, interesting. You, know, if you go to your supermarket and you buy a, a bouquet of flowers. I mean, chances are those are those are grown in Colombia. Huh. Um, the, the, most of the cut flower industry has moved down there over the last decade or so. Um, you know, if you're buying greenhouse produced uh, cucumbers or, or tomatoes or peppers in the United States, chances are those are produced somewhere in Mexico. Um, it's possible they're produced in southern Arizona, um, but uh, but most of that was produced in Mexico, and and you're starting to see the rest of the world catch on to this. I think the you know the idea that you know, large scale cannabis is going to be grown in you know warehouses in you know Ohio um, <laughs> is is just silly. I also think that when we look at what's going on in the international scene, you know you've got Canadian companies that are building out you know a million and a half square feet of of greenhouse space um, to you know supposedly supply the global market um, in you know places like Ontario. And I just I, I can't imagine that in the medium term they're going to be able to compete um, with places like Mexico or Colombia or Macedonia or Bulgaria or North Africa, right? All places that are 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 big agricultural regions outside of cannabis, um, right? I mean, you think about you know who's going to supply Europe. Well, Canada doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Germany certainly doesn't make sense, right? You got people investing in massive greenhouses houses in Denmark. What's well, cold and it's and it's gray in Denmark. It's cold and it's gray in Canada, and the cost of living and cost of expenses are really really high. You look at what I, I know. I would look at like where is all the tobacco in Europe grown? It's grown from Albania to Macedonia and Bulgaria into Turkey. It's like when you, you know, when you get when you see a pack of camels and it says fine Turkish tobacco. Right, most of that's actually grown in Macedonia and Bulgaria. Mm. Um, it's not even grown. It's not, some of it's still grown in Turkey. It's just Turkish cultivars. Um, it's Turkish cultivars. That's exactly right. Uh, but it's all grown in that. It's the tobacco belt of Europe and southeastern Europe, uh, right? Like that's where cannabis will grow more efficiently. The cost of living, uh, you know, standard uh, cost of production, cost of labor there is is, is substantially cheaper uh, than anywhere in northern Europe. The same is going to go for North America. I mean, there's a reason why we don't do large-scale commercial agriculture for just about anything in Canada other than trees, right? Because it's it's expensive um, and it's not a great climate for it. And so I think you know that that to think that like these Canadian companies are going to wind up being the suppliers for the world, I I, I think is kind of silly. Um, and you know, similarly, if you're focused on you know building a really large-scale a large-scale infrastructure for cultivation in, in most states in the United States, um, it's going to be a tough sell when first when interstate commerce opens up, but then also when international commerce opens up. You know, again, outside of, I, I think there will be some winners that come that, that can do this on a large scale in certain places in California and certain places in, in you know, Arizona, Nevada, um, where you can build good economies of scale where the, you know, the, the, the conditions are right for it. But even there, I'll give you an anecdote from the... Um, uh, from from the, the the greenhouse produce industry, the the largest contiguous greenhouse in North America, um, it, I believe, still is actually in Wilcox, Arizona. Uh, it was a company called Eurofresh. Uh, they were the largest producers of uh, greenhouse uh, cu- cucumbers, tomatoes, and peppers in North America, and mostly shipping into the northern states and Canada in the winter months. Well, they were pretty much put out of business by a very large scale greenhouse set up in southern Mexico. Um, right, they just couldn't compete on price with massive scale greenhouse production coming out of southern Mexico because cost of labor um, is so much cheaper down there than it is even in southern Arizona, where the atmospheric conditions are actually really good for greenhouse production. Um, 
ironically, the owner of that greenhouse in southern Mexico uh, happens to be the son of a former governor in the state of Arizona. Uh-huh. Uh, that greenhouse put out, like I said, put out of business, the largest greenhouse producer of tomatoes, cucumbers, and peppers in North America in Arizona. And the owner then went and bought one of those satellite greenhouses, not the largest one, um, but the satellite, one of, one of, one of this company's large, uh, larger satellite greenhouses in Snowflake, Arizona, and has now converted that to being a cannabis greenhouse, uh, and is now the large, is now the largest producer of cannabis in the state of Arizona. Well, yeah, the, 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 the venture capital reacts, right? It, it certainly does. Uh, let me ask you this. For those of us who don't have the same uh, comparison scale as you have, uh, you said a very large greenhouse in, I think, Wilcox, Arizona versus another bigger greenhouse in southern Mexico. How many acres would you say each of those greenhouses were just to give folks some scale? Oh, gosh. Um, just give me a general, I, I the- general, general idea. I mean, it was like a few square miles. Uh, oh, wow. Um, right. Yeah, like they're ma- like we saw a satellite footage of the one in, in Wilcox, and you could see like a, a there was a, I think a nine hole golf course on their property, um, and that was like it was like one tenth of the whole property. Um, it's massive, like massive. You can see it from satellite. I mean, if you look at the satellite uh, footage, if you if you if you you can actually put it in. I think if you put in Eurofresh Wilcox, Arizona, on on Google Earth or Google Maps, um, you can see it uh, on there, and it's I mean it's it's huge. Right on. Cool. Well, thank you for going down that uh, that international rabbit hole with me. I'm going to circle us all the way back to we are talking about uh, the two sides of licensing agreements and negotiating the contract. I would think that when the licensee goes to implement the contract that they have set up with the license soar um that that they will often implement it incorrectly, right? Either either because you know, they've not done it before or because they want to make their own changes. Um, have you seen, uh, you know, poor implementations of licensed contracts? I have. And, and that's where things get tricky. Um, so I'll actually take you back to my earliest days on the industry side of things here. Um, back when I was with a company called Canby, which was an, it was an offshoot of Harborside Health Center as a consulting business. Um, and actually, we were we were way ahead of our time at Canby. We were actually in the process of getting a to be a the first cannabis franchisor, we were going to franchise a couple of dispensary brands, including Harborside, um, back then before the company went under. Um, but so that's, that's actually where I learned a lot about what you have to do for franchising. Um, but you know, Harborside uh, Health Center in Oakland, one of the one of the the, the you know the best known names and biggest dispensaries in the country, um, opened their first satellite location in San Jose. Um, and they did it initially through a licensing agreement. And this was something that we helped with at Canby and, and the consulting side of things was to help get that new store up and running. Um, and so they licensed the Harborside brand um, and some of the protocols to uh, Harborside San Jose. And so the owner was a di- the owner of Harborside San Jose was a different owner than the owners of Harborside Oakland, the original store. Uh, and that, that owner, um, I, I won't name names, frankly, it's been about a decade. I don't even remember the name at this point. Um, uh, but decided that you know he wanted to do different things with the, with 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 the way Harborside was being run, and so you know early on you saw small signs like you know he wanted everybody wearing you know polo shirts with the Harborside brand on them, and you know part of what part of, you know part of at least in, you know in in Steve D'Angelo and, and the Harborside owners' minds, you know part of what made Harborside such a great experience was allowing their employees to express their individuality, um, so they didn't have you know dress codes outside of you know you can't wear something that's inappropriate to work, um, but they wanted people to be able to express their individuality 
ability to be able to relate better to people who came into the stores. And you know, now you've got this licensee who's saying, well, we want everybody in a polo shirt, Harborside logo. Yeah. But it's just one, it's one small example. And there were a lot of other things like that where the, the license was so, well, I think I can do better by doing X, Y, and Z. Um, and it, it caused some real consternation amongst the original Harborside owners who, who felt like, well, this is not our brand. You know, this isn't, it's not even necessarily that what they're doing is wrong, but this isn't our brand. And we're really concerned about the way that this brand is being implemented um, because we want to maintain the integrity of the Harborside brand, something that we put our, our, our blood, sweat and tears into. Um, and, you know, ultimately it, it, it was a, it was a, a little bit of an ugly fight um, to, uh, to, to get control of that band back. Um, and, and I can't go into the, the or I won't go into the details of, of what happened because there was, you know, there was a little bit of ugliness there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, by and large in the end, the Harborside owners were able to take that back and they ended up, you know, they, they ended up, I, I don't know whether it was a buyout or exactly how it was structured, but basically took, took back control of that San Jose store and operated it as a company owned store. Um, uh, you know, so a, essentially a, a, a real satellite Harborside rather than a, a licensed Harborside, um, because they just felt that through a licensing agreement like this, they weren't going to be able to maintain the integrity of their brand, um, as well as they could if they were operating themselves or they could, if they were franchising it, but that, you know, that really wasn't an option at that point. Right on. That makes a lot of sense. So I've got one more question for you. And, you know, you have given a lot of, of advice, both in how you want to go about establishing your license, but how also not how to screw it up. And so I'm sure that when you when you are, you know, at conventions like I am and you're overhearing people talking about their 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 efforts to license and and sometimes you hear something cringe and, uh, you know, you hear something that makes you cringe. And we've heard a lot of those things today. But what is one good piece of advice that you can offer people who are seeking to license their brand outside their origination uh, state that they may not be thinking about and you hope to God they do think about? Oh, uh, I mean, I think the two big things, and we've hit on on, on both of these at, at various points, but uh, I mean, the two big things that jump out at me is number one, have a really good corporate attorney uh, with experience in franchise law. Um, even if you're just doing licensing to make sure you're not running afoul of accidental franchise uh, laws, as I mentioned, but you'll make sure things are papered up really, really, really well. If you want to be able to protect your brand, you have to have a good con a good contract that you can that you can uh, rely on. Um, so, uh, you know, as much as, you know, I'm not a litigious person, you've got to have a good attorney um, from the very beginning uh, to help you set this thing up, right? To help you structure it the right way, to help you write your contracts the right way. Uh, having that, having that, having having a good attorney there is absolutely critical. Um, and then the second thing is, make sure you're really comfortable with the people that you're licensing to. Um, so do as much diligence as you possibly can on the principals and the managers of the company that you're licensing to. Um, you know, really dig deep into who they are. Talk about you know, talk about their their past business experience. Ask for references. Ask to talk to people that they've worked with in the past. Ask if they've done licensing agreements and how those have gone uh, in the past. But you know, don't you know, don't just rush into a deal because you know you really want to be in a state and you found somebody who's willing to pay you the money. Because ultimately, if you wind up in bed with the wrong person, it can be really painful and a really expensive process. Um, so you really, really want to do your diligence well. You really want to feel comfortable because ultimately, you're entrusting your brand or your protocols to this person uh, and this company potentially for you know for for a decade or more. Um, and you want to make sure that they're going to do right by it. That they're not going to bring you know disrepute to your brand, which ultimately will reflect negatively on you. Because when it comes down to it, the consumer doesn't know if they're buying a brand in one state versus 
versus another state, the consumer doesn't know whether that was licensed or whether that was produced by the same company that produced it in the first state. And so if somebody does something wrong with your brand and, 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 and it brings you know, some sort of disrepute to your brand that reflects on your brand all around the country. Um, and so you can deal with some of that through litigation. You could deal with some of that through contracts if you have to, but the whole point is to not get there in the first place, not have to do that kind of damage control. And the best way you can do that is to make sure that you're really, really comfortable with whoever you're going to be working with and thinking about licensing uh, your, your brand or your protocols to. I think you really hit on the point solidly when you say, you know, remember that this is a long-term relationship because, you know, I think it's good advice for folks when they're looking at somebody to date and to be in a long-term relationship with, you know, choose somebody who fights in a way that you feel really reasonable, right? Because like if you date somebody who fights fair or excuse, fights dirty, you very well could end up with a really ugly breakup. But if you, if you, if you get into a relationship with somebody who is at least respectful enough that you can fight fairly, if you do break up, chances are it, it won't necessarily be ugly. And it surprises me sometimes when I meet these folks who are aggressively licensing, you know, they're working on three or four or five state deals at the same time. And, you know, I understand their priority that they want to quick get them done so they can move on. They've got a busy day. Day. Um, but at the same time, this is a serious relationship. And, and um, I always recommend that, you know, you, you go to the state, you meet with them, try to, you know, try to have more than dinner, you know, try to do something with them because you can learn a lot by about the communication of the other management team by how they speak to their spouse or the, the rental car that they choose to drive or how they handle who's paying the check. Really simple things like that. We can all pay pick up on, oh, all right, I see how they would be under stress because this is how they are in their normal life. And and I think a lot of people figure, ah, well, you know, we're all papered up, everything, I'm protected legally, let's just move forward. And I, and I tell them, you know, you really need to get some more FaceTime with these folks because you really are getting into a relationship with them. Yeah, I mean, if you're, you know, if you're at the point where you're having to enforce legal agreements, right, you're already at a really painful point. Um, so the, you know, the whole point is to not get there. And frankly, you can have really good contracts and really good legal agreements. And if you have an unscrupulous person on the other side, it could be really painful and really expensive, even if you ultimately wind up winning. Um, right. I mean, I say w once you get to the point where you're in a lawsuit or you're in arbitration with somebody, the only winners there are the attorney. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. For everybody else involved, it's really painful. It's really challenging. You usually wind up settling uh, where, you know, nobody's really happy with the way things came out. I think your advice to spend time with them and see how they interact with things is really good. If you, anything you can do to get somebody under stress and see how they respond to stress before you get into that relationship with them, um, that kind of business relationship with them. And I think that goes for licensing. It goes for partnerships, right? JVs, any of these things are really important because it's easy to get along with somebody when everything's going fine. And when you're talking about all the money you're going to make together and the deal you're going to do together and, and you know, everything's great until stress hits. And that's when you see people's true colors. Yeah. And on that note, you know, I, I actually think one of the one of the better ways, uh, and this 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 is going to sound a bit may sound a bit odd, but one of the better ways to see how somebody deals with stress, and particularly stress in an adversarial relationship, is actually through a a a, a tough contract negotiation. Um, it's through the negotiation for the licensing agreement itself. So that's something I think you don't necessarily want to rush because this is the one time when you are actually adversarial. So you go from 
you know, you, you meet somebody, you talk about, we should do some business together, right? Everything's rosy, everybody's happy, everybody loves the idea, right? It's not adversarial at all. You're really happy together. Um, that's, you know, that's kind of like the, you know, the honeymoon dating phase. Right. Um, and then, then you got to get things papered up. And then you start bringing lawyers in, and then there's provisions of contracts that they, they're, they're not going to like. There's provisions you're not going to like. There's push and pull. It is inherently an adversarial relationship. And I've always found this to be a little bit odd because you go from everything's great to all of a sudden we're on opposite sides and we're each pushing for what's in our own interests as opposed to the other person's interests. And then as soon as that's done, you're in the boat together and everything's good again. Um, right, and you're on the same team again, and so it's this it's this weird interim time when you're negotiating that contract. Um, when if you you know if you do make it a real negotiation, um, you get a, a window into how somebody's going to respond in an adversarial, stressful relationship. And I've actually had situations where I've been in contract negotiations with somebody and ultimately said, you know what, not interested in doing this deal. Like the 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 dollars and cents are there, the you know the, the everything else lines up, but. But you I guys are a-holes. <laughs> yeah, but, but, yeah, but you've been a nightmare to deal with in all this. And what's going to happen when we have a disagreement over the business? Right? Yeah. It, it, if this is a nightmare, that's going to be even worse. And so I think you can learn a lot from contracting about how someone's going to respond. And if you get a bad feeling about like, oh, I just don't like the way these guys are handling that, you should probably walk away from that deal. That's awesome. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show and sharing your vast experience in this this (laughs) deeply going topic area. I really appreciate your time and you sharing what you know with all of us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. If you want to connect with Chris Crane directly, you can reach him at the Forefront Ventures website. That's ForefrontVentures.com. And the four in the front of front, it's the number four. So it's the number four frontventures.com. And if you want to check out their newly rolling out retail brand called Mission, you can check that out at their website, MissionCan.com. That's MissionCan.com. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los. 